It was 1935, and Anne Vorschach's year was about to begin with a literal bang. The actress was to star opposite of James Cagney in the somewhat arresting, altogether uncomplicated G-Men, a teeth-gnashing, fist-flying affair where Anne meets a gruesome fate at the bottom of a telephone booth. Hello? General Hospital? Brick Davis, please. Hurry. Hello, Brick? Gee, I found him! At it again, huh? Hey! The Warner Brothers picture was emulous of other gangster films from the period, but Cagney and Vorschach share an undeniable chemistry. Still, the movie was likely made solely for Jimmy to throw someone into a mirror. Let's not fool ourselves. Despite the film's success, Anne openly admitted that she did not always know how to choose quality projects. I used to think I could tell about a picture, how good or bad it would be before it was going to be made, but now I don't believe anyone can pick a winner in advance, said the actress. Nevertheless, one thing was certain. Anne would always find her way into movies where she was the recipient of a well-timed bullet. And Vorjak is shot again. Doesn't mind pistols and machine guns, but draws the line at cannonballs. A siren screamed down the hill, and from the salmon-colored limousine standing in front of the Big Bend Bank came a burst of machine gun and pistol fire. In the black police car, two machine guns chattered in reply. A girl darted around the salmon-colored car and ran like a frightened rabbit towards the little park in the center of the street. Just as she reached it, a bullet spun her round and she fell face downward by the wall. And Vorjak had been shot again. This time for Warner Brothers' new picture, Dr. Socrates, starring Paul Muni. Some actresses go through life without ever being shot at, but not Miss Vorjak. In the six years she has been a featured player, she has been shot at four times. Twice she has been shot to death. In Dr. Socrates, the scriptwriter was kind to her. He decreed that she should be spared and only wounded her. First time Miss Vorjak was shot was in Scarface with Muni. Her body was riddled with machine gun bullets as she battled with the law at Muni's side. In The Strange Loves of Molly Louvain, she was shot with a revolver, but the wound was not fatal. In Three on a Match, Miss Vorjak met a violent end, but without benefit of firearms. She jumped through a window. Only a few months ago, Miss Vorjak came again to a gory end, this time at the hands of a Barton McLean in G-Men. He shot her as she stood in a telephone booth. He used a pistol, which at close range seemed just as effective as a machine gun. It was Mr. McLean who is once more the cause of Miss Vorjak's gun trouble in Dr. Socrates. She accepts a ride in his car as he's on his way to hold up a bank, and in the battle between the gangsters and the law, a stray bullet lays her low. Miss Vorjak is getting a little tired of this shooting business. She doesn't like guns. People use them to kill animals, and Miss Vorjak is rabid on the subject of hunting. 
She hopes there won't be even a cap pistol in the next picture. In a way, she's glad she wasn't cast in Captain Blood. They are going to use a cannon in that one, and she's certain that someone would have insisted that she would have been on the receiving end again. That would have been a little more than she could take. Thanks a million, Anne's next film for Warner Brothers may have been a disappointing affair for the actress, but she did remain upright by the conclusion of the story. The production was overseen by Roy Del Ruth. Though nearly forgotten today, the once noted Warner Brothers mainstay was the second highest paid filmmaker of 1935. Known for an ability to create box office hits for the studio, Del Ruth was well respected by his peers. Most considered him to be of great mind, especially when it came to arranging musicals. And Vorschach did not share the public's enthusiasm for the director. She called Thanks a Million silly and ridiculous. The frustrated actress balked at the choreography, felt that her co-star Patsy Kelly was being underused, and simply did not believe in the final product. Vorschach's singing was even dubbed by Marjorie Lane. If there was a final straw to be found, this was definitely the one. The star began to rightfully think that an ornery and vengeful Jack Warner was out to sabotage her career. I must insist that you place me in productions of dramatic merit in which my artistry, personality, intelligence, and experience may be displayed, wrote Anne in a letter drafted to Warner Brothers. Failure to do so will be considered a breach of contract on your part. While the ever-strained relationship between Vorschach and the studio system was about to reach an inevitable boil, so was the summer sun on Labor Day weekend. Holiday games scheduled by local outfit. Anne Vorschach, Hollywood movie star, will bring her ball club to Monrovia on Saturday, September 1st, and Monday, Labor Day, to meet the Monrovia Merchants team in a doubleheader contest, manager C.B. Scott of the local aggregation said today. Both games will be played at Recreation Park, and with the Vorjak stars already holding a trio of victories over the Monrovians, the home guards are determined to grab both contests in an effort to even the score. A special program is now being completed for the Labor Day fracas, and if plans turn out as expected, one of the largest crowds ever to witness a ball game in this city will be on hand. Many will no doubt head for the beaches and mountains for the three-day holiday period, but when they learn that a certain child movie star may be on hand, their plans might be changed. Since she was not able to attend the game last Monrovia Day due to being on location, Anne Vorjak said she positively will be here Labor Day. She would not be present for the series. Other pressing matters were at hand, namely her autonomy. A different kind of box score was being prioritized. Baseball would have to wait. While Anne was preparing for an extended period of conflict with Warner Brothers, the actress's health was on the decline. Vorschach had just completed nine films in the past 12 months. While this grueling work schedule was commonplace for actors of the era, it was nevertheless unhealthy and unsustainable. When the exasperated but undeterred star attempted to resume production on the set of her latest film, Jack Warner quickly had her replaced. Because Anne Vorschach is too thin, Patricia Ellis gets the role in Backfire, reported Marion Nevin of the Evening Vanguard. The doctors have put Anne on a diet with rest period to gain weight. 
to Warner Brothers and was now a compromised bill of goods. They saw her as a deleterious star and capable of making a sound decision. Warshak would be removed from WB's payroll. If the alien actress cannot be medically cleared by a studio-appointed doctor, there would be an impasse for the two quarreling sides. Anne, feeling held hostage by someone else's team of physicians, hastily declined the request for an examination. On December 17, 1935, Anne would file a complaint with the Los Angeles Superior Court. The actress charged Warner Brothers with repeatedly refusing to permit the actress to further perform any services whatsoever. Vorshak demanded the termination of her contract and compensation for time wasted. This didn't concern Warner. They weren't too worried about losing Anne to another studio, especially with the performer's inconsistent box office draw. For them, this court case was more about power. If they could make an example of Anne, they most certainly would. Almost three months later, on February 14th, 1936, Anne Vorshak would arrive at the Superior Court of the State of California in and for Los Angeles County. Dressed in black from head to toe, Anne was ready for a row. The incensed actress told the court that she was fully recovered and prepared to resume her career. Warner Brothers, seeking to undermine Vorshak, brought a leaning stack of photographs into the courtroom. The pictures claimed to have shown empirical evidence that the studio star had shown up to work malnourished and underweight. One physician testifying on Vorshak's behalf claimed that the actress's weight loss had been caused by an insatiable desire for coffee and that her appearance had nothing to do with an unspecified illness. Anne had been drinking 10 cups a day. It was fine. Whatever. On March 2nd, Judge Harry H. Archibald issued his decision. It is doubtful that Miss Vorshak would have been able to complete any picture requiring sustained physical effort on her part, he determined. Anne had lost her second sparring match with Warner Brothers. She would be at the studio's mercy until her contract expired two entire years later. But 1936 was not quite over yet. In October, an unknown party would steal a large quantity of pickled walnuts from Anne Vorschach and Leslie Fenton. The ever-vigilant California Eagle was on top of the case. Anne Borzak thinks she may have given someone an awful stomachache, but not through her acting. Some thief with little or no sense of value pilfered from her ranch house recently five quarts of pickled walnuts, which if not allowed to set another six weeks, will give the courageous person eating them a swell new high in ptomaine poisoning. But merely because she is authoritative on the time required to make them safe for man or beast need not be construed as implying that the young lady's prolonged absence from the screen is due in any way to her having been victimized by her own experiments. If you were wondering, the thieves were never caught. Only two months later, Anne was in the middle of a widely reported automobile accident. Vorshak collided with a John J. Kelly. The latter alleged the actress of negligent driving. Eventually, the case was dismissed. Still, the worst of all happened only days later when Anne's Dotson made a meal of her pet bantam chick in the early morning hours. It was the final disaster of 1936. 
Finally, the year had mercifully concluded. With Anne Vorschach still under contract to a disinterested Warner Brothers, the studio decided to monetize the actress by lending her out to RKO. In turn, she would star in We Who Are About to Die and Racing Lady. These two dispassionately made films did little for Anne's now suffering celebrity. They would be Vorschach's final contributions to Warner as her contract would finally expire. Longtime pal and studio mate Joan Blondell would soon follow suit. It was the end of an era for the two actresses. Now no longer anchored to a particular studio, Anne would find her creative independence renewed. Working exclusively as a freelance performer, the newly liberated artist found a temporary home at Republic Pictures. Here, Vorschach would play a small role opposite of Jolton Joe DiMaggio in the ultra-low-budget curio, Manhattan Merry-Go-Round. Being that Anne had managed a baseball team of her own, one wonders if Vorschach and DiMaggio discussed the sport between takes. And knowing that the Yankee slugger wasn't much of an actor, I'm sure there were many of them. Anne was great in her limited screen time, but critics of the time didn't share my enthusiasm. And Vorschach turns in a capable performance, raved the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Around this time, the actress's prolific output began to noticeably decrease. Part of the reason was likely due to her then astronomical asking price of $10,000 a movie. Another contributing factor was that Anne was simply taking better care of herself. Arthur Whitley, columnist at the Salt Lake City Tribune, wrote about the star's second income. Anne Vorschach is a farmerette, her avocation, and a profitable one too, being walnut raising. She owns a large grove near the film center. This article also mentions the famous silent screen star Clara Bow. The once famous It Girl operates a nightclub just off Hollywood Boulevard known as the It Cafe. There was no word on whether or not this location lived up to its name. While Anne struck out on her own, a man known simply as the Phantom Burglar of Bel Air struck it rich. Anne and Leslie had been robbed of nearly $6,000 worth of jewels. The couple assured the press that they would be looking into burglar-proof locks, if such a thing existed. On March 24th, 1939, the spectral sensation was finally caught by authorities. Man captured with $80,000 in jewels is believed to be Phantom Burglar of Bel Air, the Wisconsin Rapids Daily Tribune reported. Detective Captain Harry Seeger said today he believed the arrest in San Francisco of Ralph Graham, 40, with $80,000 in gems, had ended a five-year search for the Phantom Burglar of Bel Air, whose particular prey had been the wealthy of the motion picture colony. The Phantom, in the past five years, has escaped with gems, furs, silverware, clothing, and other articles valued in the hundreds of thousands of dollars from homes in Bel Air and nearby fashionable districts. Always he eluded capture, although narrowly on occasion. His latest victim was actress Anne Vorschach, who lost jewels valued at $6,000 a week ago. The newspaper goes on to say that Miriam Hopkins, Gary Cooper, and Leela Lee were also victims of this crime. As it turns out, jewels weren't the only things stolen from the actress in 1939. David O. Selznick was said to have shown interest in Anne when casting Gone with the Wind. The role that would have changed Vorschach's life forever changed Olivia de Havilland's instead. 
What came next was not a date with the Oscars, but a small and significant part in Columbia Pictures' Blind Alley. In the film, a band of escaped murderers take a household of unassuming partygoers hostage. Here, Anne gives one of her more crackling, frayed, and dizzying performances. This unsettling sense of realized dread gives layers to what would otherwise be a relatively static script. In her next film for Columbia Pictures, the unfortunately named Cafe Hostess, Rorschach would once again buck expectations by providing more depth than her character required. In my favorite scene, Anne stares longingly into a lit candle until someone tells her, you're in love. Anne Vorschach's 20s were about to come to an end, but the journey was only beginning. Answer to the Previous Puzzle was written and created by Rob Patrick. It was produced by Lexi McCoy with original music by Noah East and art design by Courtney Lesore. You have heard the voices of Avery Truffleman, Molly Lambert, Megan Hattie, Julia Shapiro, Brian Formo, Allison Roche, Bram Draper, Noah East, and Allie Rosenberg. <laughs>